Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Second Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll begin reading in verse 8. Will you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you fell to godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. Let's pray. Dear Lord, though you have saved and freed from the guilt of sin each day, each week of our lives, we still wrestle against the sin in our hearts. And we would beg with you that you would show us the path to repentance that leads to salvation without regret. We ask that as we look at your word, you would show us the true nature of repentance, what it looks like, and how we can have it in our own lives. Free us from believing the lies that the world, that the enemy, and that our own hearts tell us, that it is enough to feel bad. Show us instead that true repentance produces a salvation without regret. And may we be a people characterized not by sinlessness, but by dealing with our sin in a way that leads to repentance. That you might receive the glory in our lives and that we might receive the joy and the freedom that comes from that repentance. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Have you ever heard somebody come to you and say, 
sorry, but what came to your mind is, are you really? Have you ever heard somebody say, will you forgive me? But the question in your mind is, are you really sorry that you did it? Or perhaps in your own life, have you ever dealt with a sin that you confessed and felt in the moment this sin is hideous and yet find yourself confessing the same sin again the next day or the next week or the next year? If you haven't, I just want to remind you, Children's Church was already dismissed. (laughs) I think all of us as adults can identify with that, can't we? A sin that besets, a sin that we can't seem to shake. How do we find freedom from it? We're in the middle of an eight-part series on sin and sanctification, and last week, Pastor Jeremy did a wonderful job explaining to us that if we are believers, if we are children of God, then our lives ought to be characterized by walking in the light. And we ended our time last week by looking at what it means to confess. And we looked at Joshua chapter 7 and the repentance of Achan And what a wonderful example that was of confession. We want to be able to deal with the sin in our lives. And that's what this series is designed to do, to help us battle against the sin in our own hearts and also battle against the sin in our body, that we might be able to help one another in their fight against sin. And so this morning, we're going to turn our attention to this issue of repentance. When is sorry enough? When isn't sorry enough? How do I know how sorry I have to be? The first thing we're going to look at is the contrast between godly grief and worldly grief. And as we read, you may have noticed that Paul clearly contrasts these two types of grief, godly grief and worldly grief. Look at verses 8 and 9. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Now, there are two types of grief, worldly grief and godly grief. And our first point in looking at these two is that general grief, grief by itself, is not the goal. Grief is not the goal. You see that very clearly. I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. General grief is not the goal. Second, look at verse 10 and 
Answer this question if you can in your mind. Was the worldly grief that he speaks of fake? Was it real grief or was it fake grief? Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief is real grief. It's not fake. It's not a lie, but it kills. Worldly grief is real grief, but it kills. So do you see why grief by itself is not the goal? If it's worldly grief, it's real grief, but what does it produce? Death. That's not what we want. Consider this, it's possible for a person to be very sorry, but not repent. In fact, they could be so sorry that they're weeping, mourning. They could tremble in their sorrow. But the physical, emotional, or psychological intensity of the sorrow doesn't determine if repentance is present. It's not an evaluation of how sorry you are. It's a matter of what kind of sorrow and grief you're experiencing. What distinguishes worldly grief from godly grief is not intensity. It's not outward manifestations of sorrow. Instead, it's what it produces. Notice the contrast, very clear. Godly grief produces repentance. Worldly grief produces death. I think we can all agree we don't want worldly grief. We'd want salvation, not death. So general grief isn't the goal. Our ultimate goal is not to feel sorrow, nor to make somebody else sorry. Our goal in our own lives and in the lives of those that we're dealing with is repentance, which leads to salvation. That's what we want for ourselves and for others. Third, in this contrast between godly grief and worldly grief, look at verse 9. What does godly grief do? Verse 9, as it is, I rejoice not because you are grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Godly grief produces repentance. It produces repentance, and that's what we're after. It leads, it says, to salvation. And here I don't, well, let, let me take a step back. Here, when it says it leads to salvation, that's true on an initial level. That is, when you come to Christ, when you come to Him and say, I know I am a sinner, I know that I am headed to hell, and I know that I need to be saved, we call that repentance, don't we? And that does lead to salvation. But when we're dealing with those who have already been saved, 
We're talking now about sanctification, which is also frequently in the Bible referred to simply as salvation. We're talking about becoming more and more like Christ, moving in our holiness, in our righteousness towards Christ-likeness. That also is called salvation. And so repentance leads to salvation at an initial level, that is when we become Christians, but it also leads to salvation in our daily experience, in our ongoing sanctification. Third, godly grief produces repentance, and that repentance, it says, is without regret. Now, that's a legitimate translation of the word, but it may be helpful for you to note that repentance there, or I'm sorry, regret there, could also be translated to change your mind. It's, in fact, the phrase that's used of Judas after he betrayed Christ. It says Judas regretted what he had done, or he changed his mind and went back to the priests and threw the money at their feet. Judas regretted. He regretted. And this is the idea, is that you're not going back and forth in it. Godly grief produces repentance that's unwavering. It is not a, I'm going to try today, tomorrow I'm not going to try, and I'm back and forth. It's, I will go in this direction. Now, I want you to consider two examples that I think are helpful in discerning the difference between godly grief and worldly grief and true repentance and false. A wife catches her husband stealing something from his job. She confronts him, and she expects him to respond the way that she would respond. Horrified, ashamed, tearful, verbally expressive of his failure, Instead, when she confronts him, he doesn't say anything for several minutes. He appears calculating, which she reads as figuring out whether or not he's really trapped. Then he says, you're right. He stands up, leaves the house, and drives away. What is she to think? Is this godly sorrow or worldly sorrow? Or a second A dad catches his teenage daughter texting an older boy that she was told not to talk with. She immediately breaks down and cries. She sobs. She begs him not to ground her. She confesses her sin with impressive articulation. Father, I have sinned against God and against you. I made an idol in my heart of this boy, and I cared more about my own happiness than about honoring you. What is the father to think? Is this godly sorrow or worldly sorrow? How do we know the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? By what it produces. We're going to come back to those in a few minutes. I'll tell you more about the situation. The second thing I want to look at in regard to repentance is that repentance being the goal, not sorrow, is objective and apparent. It's objective and apparent. 
Look at uh, verses 6 and 7 and see if you can figure out the question. Did Paul really know that they were repentant? Did he really know that they had repented? Have you ever caught yourself thinking along these lines? I can't possibly know their heart. Maybe they have repented, even though every indication is that they haven't, but I can't know their heart. Who am I to judge? Well, we, we can't necessarily know what's in one another's hearts. That's true. But does that mean we have no idea what's in their hearts? Look, look at verse 6 and see if Paul spoke in that way. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. And then he goes on to say, I see that you have repented And that's why I rejoice. Yes, Paul knew that the Corinthians had repented. It was objective. It was not subjective. It was not just something that went on in their own hearts. And it was apparent. It was evident. How was it apparent? Well, look at verse 11. You might read over this and miss it, but he begins verse 11 by saying, For see, see, he said it, see it. This is the same word that Christ uses in the Gospels that you may have memorized as behold. What's the idea of seeing? Look at it. Now, if, if, if somebody is sick and has a disease, you don't say, look at the disease. You can't see it unless you have a microscope or something like that. You can't see it. Why does Paul say see? Because it is apparent. It's objective. It comes out. It's visible. And he expects that their repentance can be seen. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Now, notice verse 10, godly grief produces repentance. Verse 11, godly grief has produced earnestness, eagerness, on down the line. I don't think that it's repentance plus all of these things. I think all of these descriptions are pointing to what kind of repentance it is. What does the repentance look like? That's what verse 11 is all about. So these are descriptions of what it means to be repentant. Now, we're going to go through each of these, and we're, we're going to be brief, very brief. I'm not going to give you dictionary definitions, and we're not going to worry about being excessively precise, but I want to give you a flavor for each of them. And before I do, I, I just want to make it clear, this list, there's seven of them, this list is not a checklist where if you get on down the line and, well, I'm not so sure about this one, bah then you haven't repented. This is much more a description so that you can take these characteristics and you can look at your own heart and say, is this characteristic of me? Is this what I am like? You can take it and look at your children or your friends 
and you can ask, is this what characterizes them and their grief? And if it doesn't, then our conclusion is that grief is not godly. It's not godly. It's real, but it's not godly. Look first at earnestness. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What earnestness. When Paul brought the issue to the Corinthians, their response was earnestness. They took it seriously. They addressed it diligently and willingly. They were not lazy about dealing with it, and they did not have to be forced into dealing with it. Parents, do you ever feel like you have to force your kids to want to deal with it? And that's just fine. They need to learn that. But if they have to be forced into it, is it internal or is it external? It's external. So the first characteristic is earnestness, not laziness. It's not laziness, it's earnestness. They're going after it, they're working, they're serious about it, they're diligent. Second, eagerness to clear. Eagerness to clear. There's actually no word in the Greek for eager. Uh, It's what clearing, if you will, and the word can be used to to defend. That's not Paul's point here, Uh, but it is in a sense, and so it's a fine translation. The Corinthians defended themselves in this sense. If you show up to work and your boss gives you an evaluation, and on the evaluation, there's a prompt, promptness. Does he show up on time? And there's three boxes, sometimes... Never, always. And he marked the box sometimes. And you say, sometimes, I've only been late once in the last year. How are you going to defend yourself? The best defense is not to argue that you were only late once. The The best defense is to show up on time every day from there on out. That's the idea of a defense here, is that they're proving they've actually dealt with it. There's an eagerness to clear themselves, to show that they've now done the right thing. Eagerness to clear, not excuses. Not excuses. Third is indignation. Indignation. The Corinthians were indignant at the sinner and at their own sin. They were not indignant at Paul. There was no indignation towards Paul. The indignation was entirely against the sin. They were moved, vexed, irritated, and agitated over their sin. They weren't complacent or apathetic or unmoved. What indignation. You starting to see the picture of what repentance looks like? This earnestness, eagerness, indignation. Then fourth, fear. Fear. The Corinthians treated the matter with gravity. They treated it seriously, with reverence and respect. They did not treat it lightly or joke around about it. It was not a game to them. They treated it with fear. Fifth, what longing. The Corinthians had a yearning, a longing, a strong desire to set the matter straight. They weren't lazy about dealing with it. They weren't apathetic about its importance. They longed 
to deal with it and to have it cleared. It's longing, not indifference. Have you ever brought to someone's attention a matter of sin and felt like they just didn't care about it? That's what Paul's talking about here. They cared about it. They longed to deal with it. They were not indifferent. Sixth is zeal. Zeal. They worked strenuously. You know this word probably. With fervor, with energy. They made it a high priority. It became the number one issue in their life. It was not, yeah, I'll get around to that when I have a chance. They didn't procrastinate or deal with it half-heartedly. Zeal. And then finally, punishment, not avoidance. Punishment, not avoidance. The word is actually the result, what comes from, what results from justice. And so the idea is they did wrong, and so what did they expect? They expected justice to be done. So there were consequences for what they had done. They accepted the consequences for themselves and they recognized the guilt of their actions and accepted what came from it. They also took appropriate actions against the sinner. In fact, in chapter 2, Paul has to say, okay, that's enough. The punishment that you have given him is sufficient. It's good enough. Almost as though he had to say, calm down. It's, it's okay. You've punished. It's enough. Now, the concluding sentence in verse 11, at every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. It might sound like what they've done is they've shown they've never done anything wrong. Uh, really, what Paul is saying is they've demonstrated that they are now innocent. Not that they always were innocent, but that now that they've dealt with it, they are innocent. So it's a present innocence. The wife who caught her husband stealing something from his job, remember her? He says, you're right, stands up and walks out of the house. And she's left there thinking, he's not sorry. Now she starts to plan in her mind what new things she can bring up and how she can really hammer him so that he feels more sorry. Well, he drove right to his boss's house. He confessed his sin. He returned what he had taken, and he said to his boss, whatever punishment you think is right, I accept. You think he's repented? I'd say that shows a little bit of zeal. It shows a bit of eagerness, doesn't it? It shows a longing to deal with the matter, and it shows punishment. He accepts it. He knows there's consequences. The dad who caught his teenage daughter texting the older boy, she sobs, she begs him not to ground her. Boy, externally it sure looks good, doesn't it? Great confession. Really impressive. What's the father to think? Is it godly or worldly? Well, the next day the father asks, can I see your phone? He looks at the phone and he sees that throughout that day she had been texting him. The same boy. She lacks an eagerness to clear herself. Instead, she tries to excuse herself. She says, I couldn't help it. He texted me first. What was I to do? I couldn't be rude. She had no indignation. 
against her sin. Instead, she directs her indignation towards, you guessed it, her father. Why are you so controlling? Why do you have so many rules for me? She's indignant, but towards whom? Not her sin, but the one bringing it to her attention. She lacks fear. Instead, she's very nonchalant. I just don't know why you're making such a big deal out of this. All my friends get to text boys. She lacks zeal. Instead, she's half-hearted. I just didn't know what to do. I couldn't, I couldn't possibly have not responded. She couldn't possibly have turned her phone off or added him to the block list. No, no zeal and no punishment. Instead of accepting the punishment that she has been given, she seeks to avoid it. Please don't take away my phone, Dad. So what are we to make of her tears? Was she faking it? Doesn't matter. I don't think she was faking it. That's not the point. She was grieved, but what kind of a grief was it? It proved to be a worldly grief. Now look at 1 Samuel chapter 15, and what I want to do is I want to give you two contrasting examples that I hope stick in your mind of worldly grief and godly grief. 1 Samuel chapter 15, and the author of Samuel, a truly anonymous book, but the author of Samuel deliberately sets up the contrast between Saul and David. And we're going to look at those two. Just as a reminder, First and Second Samuel were originally one book. They were split into two books because scrolls get really big. And so, literally, they cut them in half, divided it up so that it was a little more manageable. It's hard to fit that in your backpack, but two small ones, doable. First Samuel 15, and what God had told Samuel to do was to go to the Amalekites and to utterly destroy them. Completely, he spells out in detail what he wants them to do. Saul goes and fights the Amalekites. He beats them, but he deliberately spares many Amalekites. Uh, their cattle explicitly, they were told to kill. He doesn't do it, okay? He disobeys. It's a half-hearted sort of thing. Look at verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel said to Saul, and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I did it. I'm ready to receive my badge, my ribbon. I did it. And Samuel said, uh, what then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? You were told specifically to wipe those out. Saul said, 
Well, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop, (laughs) stop it. I will tell you what the Lord said to me. And so Saul said, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, you are not the head of the tribes of Israel, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Just lie after lie after lie. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. He has set his course. He will not accept it. He has no confession. I haven't sinned. Then Samuel said to him, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Now, what, is, what do we call that? Because you did this, this is the consequence. That's punishment. Now, if he was repentant, if he had godly grief, what would he do? He'd accept it. Instead, Saul said to Samuel, I, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Instant. No consequences, please. Please just give me the forgiveness and we'll move on. Verse 26. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. You know what that doesn't show fear to lay your hands upon Samuel, the prophet. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then Samuel, or Saul, said, I have sinned, okay? I admitted it. I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Oh, what negotiations. I've I've sinned. I've admitted it. You've proved it. But spare me this. Do this. That's Samuel, or that's Saul. And Samuel says at the end, or I'm sorry, not Samuel, the author says at the end, that from that day forward, Samuel never saw Saul again. Saul did not repent. 
Did he have a grief? I think so. But what kind of a grief was it? It was worldly. It was worldly. Now look at 2 Samuel chapter 12. You know the story of David and Bathsheba. David committed great sin, and then Nathan comes to confront him. David has not confessed anything either. At this point, the child has been born that came from the adultery, and David has still not confessed anything. And so Nathan is sent to him to confront him. And when he finishes confronting him, verse 7, this is what Nathan says, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now, Just think about what Saul did and what David did. Was Saul's sin worse? He didn't kill any innocent man. He didn't lie with another man's wife. He just had half-hearted obedience. David's sin is just as bad, if not worse. But look at what follows. That says the, the Lord... Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. This you did it, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. How about that for punishment? Does that seem extreme? I mean, it does. It's like, whoa. But look at verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Period. He acknowledges it. He accepts it. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now what happens? Never, I'm sorry. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you will die. Not only all these other things that I just told you, but in addition to that, and this comes after he confesses his sin, the child that you bore with Bathsheba, that child will die. And so David accepts it. He acknowledges it. And look at Psalm, actually just listen to Psalm 51. This is what he writes after Nathan confronts him. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He did not deny it. He didn't minimize it. He didn't give excuses. Instead, he accepted it. He dealt with it with eagerness 
to make it right, the wrong that he had done. Whatever sin in your life the Lord has brought to you this morning, my prayer, our prayer, is that you would respond not by looking for grief, not by simply trying to be sorry, but that you would see the fruit of repentance, that you would respond to the sin with zeal, with earnestness, with indignation and longing, and with an acceptance of the consequences that come with it. Next week, Pastor Jeremy is going to show us practically how do we do that? How do we do that? I get what it looks like, but how do I see that that is done in my life, and what practical steps can I take to implement that? Let's pray together. Lord, even of our repentance, we need to repent. Even when we are seeking to do what we believe is right and good, we know that we are still filled with error and weakness. And so we plead for your grace. May this not be a list that we use to judge others. But may it be a list, Lord, to judge our own hearts and whether or not the grief that we have is of you or of the world. And I pray that as we battle our sin, that you would produce great zeal and eagerness and earnestness and longing to clear our lives of the sin. Give us humble hearts that accept the consequences you determine. And so may we find salvation from the sins that ensnare us. For your glory and our joy we pray.